following program is a podcast1.com production. Brady Sinellis, and you're listening to the Brady Sinellis podcast. And I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the filmmaker Sean Baker. Last October, as I'm sure some of you noticed, I took a hiatus from this podcast. The podcast is something my producer, Adam Thompson, and I gather to do here on Maple Drive in Beverly Hills once a week, usually Tuesday mornings when the studio is booked for us from 11 to 1. And it's about a five-minute drive from where I live in West Hollywood, so it's all pretty easygoing. And as I've said on many occasions, I enjoy doing the podcast. So what was happening last October when the podcasts stopped appearing? And what was up with those special encore podcasts that were appearing on iTunes and the Podcast One website? There was only a slight bit of pressure to do a weekly podcast because of advertisers. And so when we would miss taping a podcast, Podcast One would have to post what they called a special encore presentation of an older podcast to fulfill responsibilities we had to our advertisers. And these missed podcasts were my fault because there seemed to be weeks when we hadn't scheduled a guest because we hadn't found the right guest, meaning that we won't fill up a podcast with a guest just to do a podcast. There has to be something about the guest that I'm interested in. Again, that I'm a fan of, someone I respond to and whom I find intelligent, as well as someone who is willing to come on without necessarily promoting anything. And sometimes this wasn't happening. And then there was my increasing frustration with the advertisers. As I mentioned in the opening of the John Densmore podcast, I had no problems reading the ads. It was something I had discussed with Podcast One when they first approached me to partner with them on a podcast. I had full approval of what I could promote, meaning I had full freedom in choosing what products I wanted to promote and which ones I could refuse, yet I was continuously rewriting ad copy. That could seem too jokey and hyperbolic to my sensibilities, especially considering the tone of this podcast, and which didn't exactly please a few advertisers who not only expected me to often excitedly read the ad copy verbatim, but also riff on their products in an improvisatory way that I never felt comfortable with. Advertisers often felt I wasn't quote-unquote enthusiastic enough about the products, products that I liked enough to advertise on this podcast, but I'm not sure how truly excited I could ever get even over excellent and helpful products like Dollar Shave Club or TrueCar.com. And there were often conversations here at the podcast one offices about what to do with my seeming lack of enthusiasm. After all, one person argued I sounded pretty enthusiastic when talking about film, and maybe I could bring that enthusiasm to talking about LegalZoom.com. 
This wasn't ultimately a deal breaker, and we were doing okay with advertisers. And again, they were not the reason at first that I took the hiatus. I had gotten a little burnt out. I had a number of writing assignments to complete, a two-week stint in Brussels at a film festival, and the planning and shooting of a long-form ad for Persol sunglasses. And so I decided to take a break, a much longer one than I originally envisioned. Over the rest of 2014, I thought about the podcast a lot, and how could we make it work with Podcast One in terms of making money for them? Because yes, this is a business for them as well as my producer and myself, perhaps without the burden of advertising. And this was when the discussion began about making the podcast subscription-based. The idea of the subscription-based podcast emerged while in discussions with the digital division of UTA, my agency, and also with ultimately Podcast One founder and chairman, Norm Paddett. After I decided that maybe we should make a go of it without advertisers who still demand that the podcast hosts read the ad copy rather than just buying space to run their own ads, and maybe it wasn't the right fit for me anymore. My producer and I talked about how maybe we should just do the podcast on our own, which meant finding a studio and not my bedroom or office and finding a booker, not heavy lifting really. But because my producer has another full-time job and I'm often immersed in writing assignments and just the day-to-day business grind of trying to get movies, web series, and TV shows made along with working on a novel and getting a play finished, we ultimately agreed that it would be easier to stay partnered with Podcast One. And so the deal was renegotiated with all parties agreeing that we would make this a subscription-only podcast. The problem, the only disagreement that came up in the negotiations was how much do we charge for the podcast? Again, more discussions ensued. Well, how much does someone pay for an IMAX ticket for a single movie? How much does someone pay for a hoodie at Comic-Con? People pay $1,000 for both weekends at Coachella. If you want to buy a song on iTunes, it's $1.29. And the needs, the desires are all, of course, different for each consumer. What is something worth to you? You would pay for the podcast depending on how much you liked it, how much you wanted it. But what was it worth to you? My producer and I were thinking that for roughly 70 minutes of conversation, editorials, film reviews, that maybe that $1.29 you pay for a song might be the fair amount per podcast, with the belief, after all the conversations with the agency, the lawyers, and Podcast One, that we would ultimately be heading into the world at some point of the subscription-only podcast, and why not get a head start? Also, there was the idea that if a guest didn't interest you, you could pass on that podcast and not purchase it. Podcast One argued persuasively that the best way this would work for them, the most practical way this could work for them, was to have a listener pay for five podcasts at a time, a batch, for something like $7.99, which seemed steep to all other parties involved, with the option to pay for larger amounts of podcasts, with the cap being $75 for a year's worth of podcasts. The people representing me, as well as myself and my producer, disagreed with this pay scale, and we disagreed with Podcast One not making them available for purchase on iTunes. You would have to pay for and download the podcast from the Podcast One website only. Full admission, my side was extremely hesitant about this, and there was much hand-wringing. But that hand-wringing was often pushed aside by curiosity. We were all very curious about how this might work out, and this was a new world. The Wild West was the metaphor that kept being bandied around. So we went ahead, completed the deal, and I did an interview with Playboy, briefly discussing why the podcast would be coming back, but as a subscription-only podcast. We began taping a batch of new podcasts in April and started putting up these new podcasts the first week of May. The reaction among a few of my friends, as well as fans of the show and social media, was swift and harsh. How dare we make anyone pay for a podcast? And I got into a few defensive arguments with friends who were fans as to why I thought this was the future. 
and I still do, by the way, not directly in this moment, but I still believe this will be coming. And their annoyance was loud and aggressive, and I was always being drowned out with a constant reminder from people who had loved the first season of the podcast that they would not be paying for the new season or any season of a podcast, let alone mine. I got into an email back and forth with a young friend of mine in New York who was one of the show's biggest fans. He emailed me weekly on what he thought of each show and who ripped into me, as many listeners did, calling me greedy and empire. I actually thought charging for podcasts was post-empire, but obviously I was in the minority. And when I wrote back to my friend defending my position about paying for the podcast, he cut me off by saying, stop it, you sound like Madonna. I had no idea what that meant, but it was obviously an insult of some kind, and I stopped engaging. I decided to let the podcast speak for themselves, and so they started airing in that first week of May. The introduction of the sentimental narrative in the first monologue set up the main theme of the second season of podcasts, and an interview with a young, mostly unknown filmmaker, Alex Ross Perry, who had made a movie that I was a big fan of called Listen Up, Philip. And again, when people who had been waiting eight months for a new patch of podcasts realized they would have to pay, the vitriol was overwhelming with very few of any supporters of this idea. But full disclosure, they actually existed. People were actually paying for the podcast. And yet, because this was subscription-based, there were fewer listeners, and so there was very little talk about the new episodes in social media, even though I noticed here and there someone would post something about the new podcast. Like so many digital platforms, it is still surprisingly difficult to get numbers, to actually find out how many people have downloaded individual podcasts. And my agent, who had negotiated the deal, finally got the numbers from the first few weeks of people who subscribed. And I thought the initial number was quite grim, much lower than I expected, though both my agency and Podcast One pointed out that the numbers were growing from that first somewhat barren week exponentially. And if they continued to grow at the rate they were growing, then we would be making at a certain point more than what we had been making through ad advertising. Now, the problem for me was not necessarily the money, though the idea of putting out another 20 or so weeks of podcasts to surpass the amount we made through advertisers seemed fruitless to me because even if Podcast One and I were making money off the podcast, we would still be reaching a small fraction of our original audience, and we would probably not ever get to half of what that audience initially was. And yet we could be making not an insubstantial amount of money by sticking to the subscription-only idea of the podcast. And yet something bothered me, and it was this idea that we were not reaching as many people as we could because of the pricey subscription, and we never would. This to me had not been a financial misstep, but in this moment an ideological misstep, and it began to gnaw at me, and my defensiveness about this new way of representing the podcast turned to frustration. And so after a lot of hand-wringing, a decision was quickly made by myself, and it took a week to pull the paywall down and get everything back to some semblance of order, a relief to me and my producer, because the idea of having to lock down an interesting guest every week began to seem overwhelming, as well as making sure the quality level was high enough to justify the expense. Those things had become a distraction? What if it wasn't a good podcast? What if the guest had nothing to say? If this was free, no problem. But if it was $7.99 a month, yikes. There was also the idea that a subscription might dictate what guests we should have or shouldn't have on the podcast if fans were paying basically 8 bucks a month. Roughly, I was constantly reminded on Twitter by irate fans what Netflix basically costs. And so the subscription ended, people who had paid were quickly refunded, and Adam and I heaved a huge sigh of relief, and quickly the audience came back. Further update, this morning I just recorded a new ad for TrueCard.com. One of the reasons I like doing this podcast is to be able to introduce someone like Sean Baker to listeners of this podcast, and I am not talking about Sean Baker of the Atlanta Falcons. 
or Alex Ross Perry, or Jonathan Ames, or being able to talk with Matthew Modine for over an hour about how grueling it was to star in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, or simply chat about horror movies with Ty West or Alexander Aja, or allow Rose McGowan to offer a skating takedown of sexism in Hollywood, or let Anthony Jeselnik just talk about how much he loved one of my books mid-podcast. It's my podcast, and I can do what I want, and no one dictates who the guests are. And as I said earlier, I like having on people I'm interested in, and especially if they are people that very few listeners have heard of, and therefore we can introduce them and their work to the podcast audience. So who is Sean Baker, and why is he on this podcast today? Though I found out subsequently he's well-known in indie circles, I hadn't heard of Sean Baker until I watched a screener of Tangerine a few weeks before the movie's release in July. And as someone who I thought closely watched the independent film scene, I was surprised that I hadn't heard of Sean Baker before this movie. And so I watched his three previous films and was somewhat blown away because Sean Baker over the last decade has made some of the most interesting and entertaining and emotional indie movies that you've never seen. And when I say indie, I'm talking about budgets that range from $3,000 to a high point of $235,000. And these aren't experimental films. They are widescreen, suspenseful, funny, sad movies, often cast with non-performers and unknowns about financial despair, about surprising alliances, about outsiders usually not at the center of indie films, either set in New York or Los Angeles. And though the situations his characters find themselves in are wrenching, they're never painful in the miserablest way that, say, the Safdie brothers have trafficked in lately and are usually redemptive but in subtle and hard-won ways. Baker likes story, and he likes incident, and he likes surprising the audience, and he's an entertainer. Even with micro-budgets, he makes visual entertainment. In some ways, with very mainstream stories played out in conventionally dramatic ways, and finding within these budgets a cinematic magic that Baker argues you just can't buy, even if Baker himself would prefer to make large budget movies on 70 millimeter. Like so many filmmakers now in our DIY culture, he has learned to adapt, often gloriously so, to the new realities of movie culture, and he has probably, I would think, surprised even himself along the way with what he has been able to achieve. The movies he's made, and I haven't seen his first one, are Takeout, which is a suspenseful, often harrowing movie about a young, illegal Chinese immigrant who works as a delivery boy for a tiny restaurant in the Upper West Side, and on the rainy day the movie takes place, has to earn as much money as he can and tips to pay off his debts to a loan shark. And despite the $3,000 budget of this movie, this is some of the most moving neorealism I've seen in contemporary movies, and I don't think I've ever seen a movie this well made on such a tiny micro-budget. This was followed by Prince of Broadway, which was presented by Lee Daniels, and is probably the best movie Lee Daniels has ever presented. And it could share its plotline with numerous Three Men and a Baby scenarios centered around an illegal immigrant, this time from Ghana, a fabulous, wildly comic, and finally very touching performance from Prince Adu, working at the streets in New York's wholesale fashion district when an ex-fling out of the blue suddenly drops off a toddler who she insists is his baby and takes off, leaving him with a child to take care of while his already precarious life begins to fall apart. Tightly constructed, but it has a startling improvisatory feel to it, and it's both very funny and heartbreaking. This led to Baker's biggest budget movie, Starlet, made for $235,000, and it's set in the San Fernando Valley where we follow an aimless 21-year-old actress, Dree Hemingway, who finds $10,000 tucked away in a thermos she buys at a yard sale and tries to befriend the much older woman who is bitter and annoyed she bought the thermos from without telling the older woman about the money. 
and we realized the money was put there by her deceased gambler husband, suddenly curious about this older woman's life. But the movie also reveals that the actress is an up-and-coming porn performer being groomed for porn stardom, whatever that may be. Manola Dargis of the New York Times called it a thrillingly, unexpectedly good American movie about love and moral awakening, and I wholeheartedly agree. Though, do not be surprised by how matter-of-fact the movie is in its depiction of the porn industry, and don't be shocked by the brief hardcore porn that is if you don't get it on iTunes that enters into a key scene in the movie and yes it is very tastefully done and necessary and watch out for the startling deeply moving final moments so Starlet looks to be Baker's breakthrough movie he wins the Independent Spirit Awards Robert Altman Award it's a completely engrossing comedy drama rigorously well shot and looks to be the breakthrough that Baker has been waiting for it's a very commercial in its own way indie movie and we'll talk about what happens to a young filmmaker in this day and age where nothing is a certainty and one can languish in film festival after film festival and not be able to pay the bills even when your movie is almost rapturously received and awarded we'll get back to this period after Starlet and before Sean Baker's latest movie. So what has come next for Baker is this summer's most talked about indie movie, Tangerine, which you might know is a raucous, dirty comedy about one day and night in the lives of two transgender sex workers, Maya Taylor and Katana Kiki Rodriguez, on the streets of Los Angeles on Christmas Eve. And that's all I'm going to say about the plot. And it is as structured as a tightly wound old school farce. Before you start tuning out on Tangerine, because you might think this sounds like indie pandering to the PC culture at its worst, black, transgender, poor, sex worker, Christmas Eve, don't. It's a really good movie because it isn't condescending in the way so many indie movies are about marginalized lives where the filmmakers find something honorable about being a victim and falling in line with the victim epidemic in our country right now. One of the reasons it works is that Baker and his co-writer want to tell a story. And though not necessarily in the beat-by-beat way that studio movies and large-scale indies do, Tangerine is resolutely accessible and mainstream. Baker directed, co-wrote, edited, and was one of the cinematographers on Tangerine, and I really don't want to overrate Tangerine because I think you need to go into this 88-minute whirlwind of a movie with certain low-key expectations. But one of the reasons why Tangerine is such a pivotal movie in this moment is that it was entirely shot on an iPhone. And you are probably going to think after hearing this that the movie must look and sound like shit. But no, it's mostly gorgeous, with film grain added in post-production and color enhanced to give the movie a gloriously saturated look. And keeping within its $100,000 budget, all the music comes from emerging artists who posted their work on SoundCloud and allowed their music to be used. And we are a long way from 1973, where half of George Lucas's American graffiti budget went toward licensing fees for its wall-to-wall soundtrack. Tangerine is one of the most important moments in DIY film culture, and by extension in film culture in general because of how Baker adapted to the new realities of independent filmmaking, in much the same way how Tangerine's producers, the Duplass brothers, adapted to the new indie scene when they made their first movie, The Puffy Chair, for $15,000. And we were a long, long way from Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape costing $1.2 million in 1989, and that was considered nothing then. And it reminds me of how Joe Swanberg, after spending time in Hollywood, stuck in the never-ending development deal, just said, fuck it 
it and started making his own movies with his credit cards and friends for years, becoming one of the key proponents of the mumblecore aesthetic before working up to a million-dollar budget with the breakthrough rom-com Drinking Buddies or the way Paul Schrader used Kickstarter to finance his micro-budget L.A. neo-noir The Canyons. And though Tangerine is a big deal because of its technological advances, it is also notable in this transgender moment of Orange is the New Black and the Caitlyn Jenner sentimental narrative in completely refusing to indulge in victim cinema with a martyr narrative, and it is resolutely not a moralistic film. It's just an amazingly vibrant piece of filmmaking. But let's take our listeners through what happened that led to Tangerine, because I think it's a very interesting and very common story about where filmmakers stand today. But first, we need to go back to Starlet, your biggest budget movie, and what happened with Starlet, and you win an Independent Spirit Award. And I mean, I'm saying that like winning an ISA makes anyone any money anyway. But what happens to the next film? Because I'm assuming the next film is not automatically going to be Tangerine. Were you planning something else after Starlet? What were your expectations after Starlet? I mean, in this moment of Starlet, you must think, okay, God, I kind of did it. I mean, I'm getting a rave review from Madola Dargis. I'm winning these awards at these festivals. I must be on the precipice of something. I mean, I know that when you were in film school, you actually envisioned yourself making studio films and making much bigger films. And it's just been for you and for an entire generation of filmmakers probably, well, this is the reality and we have to kind of adapt to it in a way. So I was just kind of wondering where your headspace was in after Starlet and what you were thinking was going to happen to sure. Well, I got to the point where I, I didn't see these films as calling cards any longer to the studios. I was past that. I thought it would be my calling card to find uh, financiers who would give me enough money to make a, you know, a, a larger budget independent. And I actually had something that I was developing for a while. Um, you know, Karin Karagulian, who I've worked with now five times. Love him. Love this actor. He's in all of Sean's movies, and he's just great. He's an Armenian-American, um, and he uh, has very close ties to the Russian community in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. So we developed this. Uh, we wrote this script called Caviar that starts off like a genre film and turns into a bromance. It's, it's, it was very tightly scripted. Um, it used the backdrop of the uh, George Ossetian conflict at the time we were it was it was mainstream in terms of an indie it was it was it still had some nice twists and turns and whatever anyway (laughs) what I'm getting to is that um, we had a few producers come on board and they wanted to make this thing big not exactly how we had written it we had written it for basically Jovovich or Kunis and those would be the only two names in this movie the rest I wanted to get all Russian actors to come over the biggest Russian actors to come over and do it um, and uh, but then these producers I was talking to they had this sort of uh, they were trying to say oh well we're going to have Channing Tatum and Gosling do some Russian accents and we're going to go out to them what happened is that the industry is so upside down right now you you need um you need to cast in order to get financing and you need financing in order for the cat these to start a listers to even read your script so it was this cycle that was going on for about a year and a half and i after a year and a half i basically threw up my arms i was like i'm not going to make another film unless i get unless i do something myself and i listened to the joe swanberg interview you had um he was actually one of the inspirations for me because he's so prolific 
and yeah. I was actually looking at him, and I was also looking at this, uh, this the Korean uh, director, Kim Ki-duk, and how he turns out mm-hmm. seems like one a year. And I just said, you know what? It's time for me to do something quickly because I feel like I'm drowning. You're originally from back east. You, I always mm. hear you're, you say you're 20 minutes outside of Manhattan, so you're in New Jersey, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you grew up in New Jersey. Yeah. And when did you become interested in movies, and when did you realize that this was going to be your future? Oh, it was one of those, like, very... Like first grade, my my mother brought me to the local library in Milburn, New Jersey, and at the time they were showing these. I I believe you know it's it was first grade, but I, I from what I can remember, there was it was actually like sixteen millimeter film loops that they were showing of the old Universal monster films, mm-hmm. and I remember the images just seared into my pre frontal cortex where it's like i remember this shot of from the mummy him being stabbed with the rod i remember the image of uh bella lugosi when he's first revealed in dracula but the one that really connected with me was the burning mill scene at the end of frankenstein so they were showing these big key scenes and i remember that night telling my mother i want to make movies and from that point on it was like the it was that cliche mm-hmm. where I made a lot of Super 8 films growing up and then mm-hmm. VHS and then I went to NYU. and yeah. Right. Basically, you moved to L.A. and in your neighborhood, you are, I guess, near the corner of Highland and Santa Monica Boulevard. You're taking a walk. You're looking around. What is so interesting about Tangerine, it wasn't like you and your co-writer sat in a room and said, Let's come up with a screwball farce about two transgender people on Christmas Eve, uh, one who just got out of jail and is going to find the pimp that she just found out cheated on her and so on and so forth with this other uh, plot going on with the Armenian um, cab driver Mm. played by Karen. It happens in a very kind of um, organic way. You're walking around. And again, I I know you've spoken a lot about this and I I don't want to belabor it, Mm. but this movie forms in your head because of kind of an actual experience you meet people and this movie starts getting billed you meet i think you meet maya first mm. yes. and then maya introduce you yes. to kiki right and so you get this idea from them the conversations you have this kind of story you've heard about something like this a girl comes out of prison and yes. has to find her it was kiki kiki yes. introduced you to that and so you come up with this movie, you write this movie, and you realize at a certain point that in order to make the movie that you want to make, with help, again, from the Duplass brothers, that it's going to work best with shooting this on an iPhone. Mm. This has been talked to death, but it's also been great for the movie, I think, because it's gotten it so much attention. And it really is kind of a miraculous thing when you watch this film, because it is so widescreen, so beautiful, and just really well done with crane shots and tracking shots with Sean on a bike driving past the characters. It really is one of the most inventive moments in DIY cinema. And so that's a big deal. But I'm kind of wondering is, okay, so you've made Tangerine, and it's come out and it's done what it's doing i mean i just find it odd sometimes when artists find themselves at a point in their lives where they have made a movie that really might they might not have ever been on their list of movies Mm. to make but it becomes this deeply personal thing that connects with an audience do you find any kind of strange disconnect from that or is it all just i'm just completely going with it or is it a part of you going this is strange very very strange for me and then I'm also very connected, and I shouldn't be, but with uh, social media. And so I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a little addicted right now to reading the Twitter oh, feed. Of and, 
And it's, Which is um, quite benign. The Twitter feed is, is not, because I checked it. It's, it. People are super positive about this movie. Yes, yes. But, of course, I focus on the one or two that right. are not. <laughs> right, 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 right. And then I think, oh, should I be def- – then, I don't know. I just get to the point where it's a little too much. I'm, I'm, my, I've been focused, actually, on just trying to get Tangerine behind me. And right. move on to the next film. And my fear is that the same thing is going to happen again. And I'm still at that moment where the finan- no financiers are there. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting worried that once again, because I all I, <laughs> I've wanted to do this for so long is just move up into that million dollar range where I can start making films comfortably where it's not this really this, this begging and borrowing and living below the poverty line. It's just for everybody included, it's the amazing. cast and crew, where I just want to get past that so <laughs> i know if i had ever i mean I'm, I'm i'm a bit older than you um it's amazing to hear young filmmakers say if i could only get to that million dollar budget mm. where i can make a movie and i really never thought that that we would be here but we are and I, and it was shocking again when when to know that you know when joe swanberg made drinking buddies it was for about a million bucks i think and it was like his by Bar, mm. the biggest budget he's ever worked with, and for someone who kind of grew up in uh, really near the near the end of the high budget independent movie, yeah. I mean, I remember there were high budget independent movies that cost fifteen to twenty million dollars, and those days are far yeah. far gone. But I've noticed that when you are being interviewed about Tangerine, you are very careful to state that you are cisgender, yes. a person whose gender identity matches their sex at birth, and a term that I first became aware of during a South Park episode from last season, I think, which poked fun at the need for such terminology right. in our label of sus culture. And yes, listeners and little snowflakes, you can both accept and make fun of something in the culture. I know this is a mind-blowing conception to some of you, but it is a reality. So your movie is refreshingly un-PC, and political correctness is thrown out in favor of kind of just human behavior, just real behavior. What would these people be acting like in this situation without any ideology, political, you know, lathered onto it? And it's a kind of realism mixed in with a kind of screwball boulevard farce. What I want to talk to you about is the place we all find ourselves in, especially in the public eye that we all find ourselves in, the, you know, the tension of the moment, is are we being our authentic and often contradictory true selves, or are we now warping into the fake ideal that corporate society now imposes on us? I mean, in other words, are we all becoming, in fact, a bunch of clockwork oranges? And now, are you conscious of this when you're promoting the movie. I mean, I imagine you have to be vigilant considering how volatile the PC police and social justice wars can get. And I bring this up because I'm reading here from the opening paragraph of a rather benign review in the rather apolitical film comment magazine where the writer says, there's nothing inherently wrong with the right what you know principle. Yet as the guiding aesthetic of the predominantly white male world of American independent filmmaking, it's stultifying. Sean Baker, a straight white cisgender man from New Jersey, has collaborated with a variety of subjects, fashioning fictions from their lived experience. Now, there is kind of a lot of hidden and maybe not so hidden invective in that, and I suppose you are used to it, and it's hard in this, you know, moment of transgender sympathy and the altering of so many people's minds to talk about Tangerine without this being a reference point, as if the film only exists because of its timing in a way. And I think you're getting a lot of coverage because of this, but sometimes I feel that both the subject matter and the way you shot the movie kind of crash into each other. And sometimes this noise 
takes us away from why Tangerine really works. And that's nuts and bolt movie making and the writing, the script, and the exuberant and very visual and very funny comedy. And Maya Taylor, one of the transgender stars, told you that if you are going to make the movie, you have to promise her that it can't be a politically correct representation of this life. And it should be funny because humor is how we cope. Now, you obviously took this to heart and you avoided the earnest Sundance version of this movie, let's say. But I think that's in your wheelhouse anyway. I'm not sure your temperament needed to be told this necessarily. You might have found this common ground anyway. But one thing, um, I know there's a lot to take in, but Mm -hmm. one thing that you said, you said quite a few people told you at one point not to make this Mm -hmm. film. Who were they and what did they mean by that? Getting back to the idea of... Were you the right person because you are a cisgender white male? Was that the reason or was it a completely different set of reasons? I think when I was first told not to make it, it was because the, the that person was aware that, um, well, he had much stronger ties to the community than I did. This was a this was a documentarian who had made a film about uh, the trans movement. And when I mentioned to him that I might be making a narrative fiction film, I have no idea what it's going to be yet, but I'm going to go down this road. He said, oh, I don't want you to do that. That's not a good thing for you to do. I'm bristling, but I'm going to let you finish. And, and, I, and I said, well, you don't know exactly how I'm going to do it, so I think you should maybe wait until I can tell you or, or you can see it uh, for yourself. Uh, but, um, but that stuck with me for a very long time because I realized there were going to be people, no matter what I produced, uh, that would be you know, uh, just against it, just, just, uh, just not supporting it. Does that change how you approach this movie at all with your co-writer or not? No, no, most definitely not, because at some point I just have to get real with myself and say I have to make the best thing that I can do. And and who the only people I actually have to answer to were Maya and Kiki in the end anyway. So mm-hmm. besides that, I had to at, at some point pull <laughs> just the the... I just had to put the blinders on and, and go forward and make this film. But I have to answer that then getting the film out there mm-hmm. that's been a different thing i've had to throw the blinders up and then suddenly uh you know uh be very conscious on about how i uh word things and the turbin- terminology and and it's not out of being pc or it's not out of uh, protecting myself it's i think it comes from a sensitive place where i'm trying to be of sensitive course, and, and polite um but uh it is also quite a stressful thing because i know that no matter what i say five years from now that something might be on pc and even if I if I use, who knows if the term cisgender? What a terrible way to live! What a terrible way for all of us. That's to why live. I'm not doing uh, I'm not doing commentary on my Blu-ray because no. I know that something I say will be on PC five years from now. Um, yeah, it's and it's just more about. Um, I guess that is protecting myself, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> but I also think that well, look, look. I think you can do the commentary on Tangerine that mm. has to be done is mm. a technical commentary, don't mm. you think? Tell people how you got those like little mini crane shots and how you got these tracking shots. I think that's the commentary. I don't know if the commentary is on gender or transgender lives or sex workers or anything, but I think that is the most valuable commentary oh, you that you can have. Some people think just the opposite. 
Like, really? for example, when I, I just showed the film in Sydney and a lot of people came up to me afterwards and were like, we're so upset at the Sydney audience for asking you only technical questions. There wasn't one question to do with gender and identity and, you know, the movement at the time at this t- point in time. It's, but that's what I was talking about. There is that notion. I mean, look, anyone can make a movie. <laughs> anyone can make a movie now. And you proved it. You can make a movie in your iPhone and with some cash from the Duplass. Bros. Right, right. But anyone can make a movie. How do you get it seen? How do you get that's the key thing. That's the thing that Paul Schrader was most worried about, the canyons, which I, and I think that's one of the reasons why he cast train wreck Lindsay Lohan mm-hmm. in it is because it definitely made the project more visible. Mm-hmm. And his concern wasn't making the movie. He said, we can all, we just got in Kickstarter. We raised some money. We'll sh- shoot it around town. It's getting it seen. And I think part of the narrative, the tangerine that's so great is the iPhone technology that's used and using those three iPhones, using the apps to, and using the lens to clip on the iPhone to give it that widescreen quality is a vital part of why this movie is talked about and noticed. And now, look, it's not as if, and I'm not saying this in any denigrating way, it's not as if this is the greatest film ever made and has to be talked about only in terms of its subject matter. It's great that you hit this moment in transgender, the transgender narrative of it all, and also that you moved the dial technologically for filmmakers who can say because i remember you i guess went to sundance uh, this year and you expected to see a bunch of iphone movies and there were, weren't any you yeah. said yeah i was uh i thought that this would be the year where there would be at least four <laughs> i just assumed it just because we're there at the, and, and now that we can shoot hd on our iphones why not but I also know that you never want to do that again. You're never no, no, going no, to make no, a phone no, no, no. on an iPhone. Well, it's not. I mean, who knows where we'll be in five years? Right. I mean, even since we shot this film a year and a half ago, supposedly you can shoot 3K already on your That's iPhone. Crazy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I I do. And this is where a lot of like the uh, DIY filmmakers and that community, they get upset at me when I say this. <laughs> But I honestly still love celluloid, and I want to oh, shoot on film. Please. Yeah, I I really feel as if you have the means to do it, you better do it because we're running out of time, and um and I want to get there. I want to get back there. I mean, you know, I shot my first film, which I know you haven't seen, yeah. but that was a that was a film called Four Letter Words. I shot on thirty five using all the short ends from um from Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys mm-hmm. way back in the day. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it was a wonderful experience. I still have that thing where I can scan it into a 4K. It'll be just as beautiful mm-hmm. as the day I shot it. My last four films, I'm getting worried about how I'm even going to archive this stuff. Right, <laughs> like, I'm right. getting worried that my digital fly- files will disappear one day and during an electric storm or something. So um, anyway, that was a tangent. But but what, I'm, what I, uh, I, I wouldn't do it right now because number that was for many reasons and and one of the main reasons is also i just want to mix it up next time i don't want to right. give people what they might expect right but getting back to that thing it is i mean i could sort of see the uh tautness in your face when we were talking about doing the commentary hmm. for tangerine yeah. um because it does it just happened to me this I, I think everyone's learning right now in this moment right uh i know that glad for example just put out their rather bossy rules of etiquette on how to deal with trans transgender people that for some of us can seem a little bit uh, invasive in a way a li- has a tonal quality that's a little bossy a little bullying a little demanding yeah but a little demanding but but hey maybe it needs to happen but i know that recently i i just you know i learned last week i had posted something on facebook it was an advertisement for a 
podcast with peaches that I had recorded, and I included in that post I pics of some of the things that we talked about, like uh, a headshot of the Phantom from Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. I had talked about Mad Max Fury Road and the feminist underpinning. So there's a picture of two of the beautiful wives at a press conference. There's a picture of Peaches. And then there was a picture of Laura Jane Grace, who used to be Thomas Gable of the band Against Me. I have been a fan of Against Me ever since uh, they appeared, and I had a huge crush on Thomas Gable. And it was quite a shock for me to see this transgender into Laura Jane. But I loved the last record, uh, Transgender Dysphoria Blues. And so I listened to all the things that we talked about in this podcast, and automatically the first comment I got on the Facebook board was from a social justice warrior, a young, very mean-looking girl, not that you all look that way, who wrote, sharing before pictures and dead naming trans folks is a dick move stop it and she went on to say in another post that i had disregarded the feelings of laura jane grace by doing this by having a picture of thomas somewhere nearby and i went to the girl's facebook page and i didn't really want to tell her that about a month earlier i had done a similar thing because i was so into transgender dysphoria blues this against me record that i tweeted about it and i did two pictures of thomas as a young man and kind of mid-career in the band on stage and then two pictures of who he had transgendered into laura jane and i thought it was kind of an amazing thing the record is all about that and uh laura jane grace had not only favorited the tweet but Mm. retweeted it Mm. and i kind of was thinking do i want to even get into this do i Mm. want to tell Mm. the girl that you know, it is different. We're all moving in. We all have different opinions it's and ways of It's all about the individual. It. It's always the about individual. the individual. Yeah. That's the key thing. Where, what is happening to the individual? <laughs> and why is everyone being sucked into this groupthink ideology? Right. That's exactly why I always say in the end that the only two people I truly have to answer to are my two collaborators, Maya and Kiki. And I can't be – some people uh, – you know what it is? Some people think that uh, uh, you make a film like this and automatically this is representing an, the entire – every trans person out there, the entire you – yeah. all the communities. Um, and in the end – it comes down to this. It's com- it comes down to first off, you know, it's, it's it's individuals. That's how my characters have to be seen in these movies. They're not representations of entire communities. But plus, it really it just my film in the end is about a microcosm. It's about a, a city block. Yeah. You know, it's in Los Angeles, and uh, and it's it has to be seen that way. You know, it's funny. James Ranson just recently, uh, you know, James James Ranson's in the film he plays. Chester. I do. I, he was in a short I made. Oh, which one? Oh, these haven't been released. I just oh. made a bunch of shorts, and James uh, starred in one where he didn't have any dialogue. He just had to walk around a pool at night quite drunk, oh. and then he gets abducted. <laughs> Interesting. i got to see this. Okay. Uh, but well, anyway, I, and I love James, and I, and I love that he's in the, your two movies, and, yeah, Star- yeah. and he's great in Starlet, too. Yeah, I was introduced to him through Ken Park. Larry mm-hmm. Clark's film, right. and uh, he he made me laugh in that film. So I said, I'm going to work with this guy someday. Uh, anyway, so uh, he he said that you know tan- for him, Tangerine is just more of a it's an L.A. movie. That's how he sees yeah. it. He doesn't see it as a, a trans film or oh, a sex worker film or an Armenian film. He sees it as an L.A. film. I completely look at it that way as well. Well, and and while we're on that topic, this idea of the L.A. film, were there any films? Were there any L.A. set films that have really 
influenced you in terms of thinking about how to shoot L.A.? I know that you said that you didn't realize that L.A. had not been shot out yet, Mm. that there was a wide swath of L.A. that, you know, you think everywhere has been somehow shot, but you realize wait a minute, this hasn't been, there's a lot of L.A. that hasn't been shot out yet. But are there particular movies that you, not reference for Tangerine, because it's kind of difficult um, given, you know, kind of where you were at in terms of how you made this movie. Mm-hmm. But any you were thinking of? Well, do you have, or do you have for, any favorites anyway? Well, before Starlet, actually, uh, just before making Also it. another terrific looking movie. And I've never seen The Valley shot that way. That was so oh, just you. amazing looking. Thank you. I think I was intentionally trying to win over Angelinos. <laughs> Being from New York. But anyway, so remember uh, Alex in Wonderland? Of course, it's a Paul Mazursky movie right. with Donald Sutherland and Ellen Burstyn from 1970 about right. the director who's um, having his uh, yes. having his kind of crisis of trying to follow up his first film. I think yes, that's what exactly. It was but it was like beautifully shot, Beautiful. wide screen showing Hollywood Boulevard and, and Beverly Hills. And Beverly Hills. Yeah. And so that was one of the few. But I was. Yeah, that was one of the few examples I used. To, I showed to Radium Chung, my DP, and mm-hmm. said, I think we want to try to capture Los Angeles this way. It feels right. So, but that that's really one of the if if only the, the only one. So, um, so, no, not really any other examples. More out of t- maybe tone. Like, you know, the Exiles, the film The Exiles. Oh, sounds familiar. About Give the, me, what is um, it? The... Uh, Latino community um, around Bunker Hill, 1960, real independent. No. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I can't believe I can't remember the director's name. But anyway, um, that was more tonally just uh, the, you know, an example. But no, in terms of the look, I just wanted to, you know, I was very, when I was doing my location scouting for Starlet, and I, I, I've told the story a lot, so I'll make it fast, but basically the sun was always blinding me no matter what direction I was mm-hmm. I was facing, and I was doing my own location scouting. So, so I said to Radium, I'm like, let's capture this sun. Let's just capture mm-hmm. it with anamorphic lenses and let the sun smear across the, mm. the frame. And he did it for me. And then we said, let's repeat it with Tangerine. You touched upon it, this notion of the... You can't touch certain people in the culture because they've been enshrouded in a kind of saintliness, that mm. they have become kind of perfect. Um, I think we're getting to the end of the Caitlyn Jenner narrative about that. I want to get to that in a minute. But there seems to be at this point in this the transgender awakening, I call it, for all of us. And I, I've been very honest that I, I talked about how I had dated someone um, a long time ago who started to transgender about five, six years after I stopped dating. We We've remained friends to this day. But there was this moment before it really became a thing where, for those of us who weren't, you know, around it, made fun of it. It was a kind of a joke, like, oh, he's crazy. Mm. He just must be fucking crazy then. And so it has been for a lot of us, even people who think we're really, you know, we've got it together and we're super sophisticated. You know, it, it's, it's, it, is, it has been an awakening. But there is also something about the saintliness of the ideal of the transgender person that almost some kind of doesn't make them human in a way. And this this happens to gay people, this happens to black people, this happens, happens to a lot of people. Every oh, so, but you know, it's interesting that the term fish yeah. coming from a transgender person means what exactly? It means a um a cisgender woman. Female. Right. And the term fish is really about what? 
<laughs> it's used all the time. I mean, of course, I it's, mean, it's alluding to a the smell of uh, yes, perhaps a, a, the woman's a bad smell. orifice. Yes. Right. <laughs> I often wonder if the PC police are going to crack down on everybody. Why is it, that kind of just allowed to fly? Even that has been touched upon a little bit on, on Twitter. I've heard one or two getting upset at um, what they call misogynistic terminology used in the film, um, which, you know, again, I just... No, and I agree. And look, there have been a lot of people who've talked about the misogyny that's inherent in drag acts, mm. that there is a kind of a level, an overlay right. of misogyny right. in drag acts with um, men exa- over-exaggerating mm. women and making fish jokes constantly and mm. this kind of thing is endemic in the culture. And the conversation that we've been having is that it's endemic in male-based culture anyway. Rose McGowan was on this podcast really interestingly talking about the misogyny in gay male culture Mm. and how it does exist and how no one really wants to talk about it because gay people want to present themselves as this thing. In this cultural moment, we are perfect. You can't touch us. We're not dirty. We're not depressed. And so this kind of saintliness comes in that really in a way dehumanizes someone because they just don't seem real. Mm. And what I like, again, I'm referencing Tangerine, is that the two leads are, you know, they're not sparkling beacons of happiness and uh, progressive progressivism. Mm. They're real people and they're characters first and foremost with all their flaws and their craziness and their despair. Mm. And I know I keep hitting on that, but I think that's such an important part of this movie and the way that you approached it. Yeah, I... um I think people, when they bring up, well, you brought up the fish thing, and and uh, and then there have been a few reactions about, you know, the misogyny. Perhaps the perhaps uh, they they see it as misogyny in, in, in Tangerine. I would say there is a pressure, a struggle between two two communities, and I and I I did this in in Takeout too, where when we we shot at this Chinese restaurant in the upper upper west side of Manhattan, and we saw a constant tension mm-hmm. between you know the asian community or the chinese community and the the black community right mm-hmm. there and you know we we had to show it because if if we didn't show it, it wouldn't be an honest film mm-hmm. and and we're also showing it in tangerine i mean just through you yes. know the way that you know they refer to women there's the underlining um well, it has to do with identity and, and the fact that I, I think she feels betrayed so much by what has – I'm talking about the Cindy character. Mm-hmm. The Cindy character has feel, felt betrayed so much in the actions of her boyfriend, the one really scathing, biting, extra little element to this is that it involved somebody uh, – you know who is a cisgender female and she she wants to be 100 percent. you know she she identifies herself as a woman and wants the rest of the world to so there's that pressure there's that there's that tension there that extra little bit of tension and and that's why we we brought that's why we we decided to make this the a plot of the film i mean because it's layered in that way and we wanted to to approach this subject we wanted to to cover this subject but uh 
Does that make sense? Yeah, that? it does make sense. <laughs> and it's really interesting what you say about Takeout, which is, again, a film listeners that I really, really recommend. I'm not giving anything away, but there's the climax in the elevator that really does speak to directly what you're talking about in terms of the tensions between the Asian community and the mm-hmm. black communities up mm-hmm. there. And it is a wrenching, powerful scene that you could you could see someone reading that scene negatively in a way in terms of the portrayal of yes. uh, blacks. Right. But also it just seemed like in that moment in this film, it would just culminate into that one mm-hmm. episode. And it's just a wrenching moment. And again, I really recommend this movie. But I want to talk about reviews and criticism and how filmmakers deal with criticism, how important criticism is. And I also want to talk about bad reviews. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about um, the gay journalist, Richard Juzwiak, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who writes for Gawker, was not a fan of Tangerine and wrote a blistering, somewhat overly PC review and called it the most overrated movie of the year. And now on a certain level, Sean, I got to say, I'm suspicious of the 100% Rotten Tomatoes thing. I remember when Boyhood came out last summer, a movie that I loved. I really began to feel oppressed by the good reviews that kept <laughs> pouring forth of it. And I was dying for someone to oh, give yeah. it a bad review. Oh, of course. But I don't know about this kind of reviewing. And I'm wondering if a film like Tangerine kind of engenders this kind of thinking. He cited various reasons why he thought it was the most overrated movie of the year. Some aesthetic, some ideological. He hated the movie. And there is the idea within his review that it's a flawed film because you are a cisgender straight white man. And because of this, and I know we've touched upon Mm. it before, but I'm more or less talking about the idea of the review. Mm. And because of this, he calls the movie insulting. He writes, I didn't know the extent of their identity beforehand, but it didn't surprise me at all to discover that Sean Baker and his co-writer are white, straight, cisgender men. And my own personal thing, I actually thought you guys were gay. I didn't know until I met you. So it just proves that everyone has their own Mm. mirror that they bring Mm. to the situation. So, of course, the trans women they dreamed up are prostitutes, and they supposedly did so with help from Rodriguez and Taylor, as well as the transgender prostitutes they befriended along the way. And I wonder how much more typical and threadbare their characters would have been without outside input. He goes on to quote the actor-activist author Calpurnia Adams, who wrote an analysis of trans stereotypes in media, and Juzwiak accuses you of representing three of the four Ps, Adams cites, which are prostitute, psycho, poor thing, a.k.a. the noble victim. Look, I personally think you avoided this and that what you did was, in yeah, fact, we were progressive. Actually, we were actually trying to think of what the – which – we understood two of the Ps, mm-hmm. but we were trying to figure out which one of the other two. <laughs> but also, you know, he just is one of these guys. He likes to start wars. I think, yeah, he, I think he waited until he saw how – what types of reviews were coming in for this film to really figure out what his stance would be on it. And then even uh, even after the fact, I could see he reached out to Miss Adams and was like, did you see this film? They they did three of the four Ps. Yeah, I just saw that on. It's like, they, they, I think he was just, he's just uh, trying to start something. And you know what? Um, I, I, I think it's just such a ridiculous argument that I didn't even finish the mm-hmm. review. I got mm-hmm. about three quarters through it before mm-hmm. just giving up on it because I realized there's just the agenda just to fight. 
But throughout your career, you have gotten very good reviews, it seems. Though I remember there was a couple reviews for Starlet mm. that took you to task for the porn moment mm. in that movie. Mm. And someone calling it was like uh, saying that this film was like a beautiful flower that was blooming out of like a septic tank. I remember that line. And I, <laughs> I kind of like that, actually. I, I like that line, too. I love that idea. Yeah. But as someone who has, you've, you have been, um, well, look, helped to what degree by good reviews, but it has been like a mainstay throughout your career you've been right pretty well-reviewed filmmaker yes yes and uh, how much has this helped but but it, it, it's helped a l- i guess it's helped i haven't uh i've continued making these even i mean look when it comes to the negativity stuff uh or like people who don't like what i do or have issues with what i do it, it comes up during the q a's while we're having screenings that's a lot of it um and you know over the course of the last four films each one has i've i've been in some very hairy q and a's in which people have attacked and uh do you keep your shit together oh yeah yeah okay, never I, lost I hear it. there was a, i wasn't even there but i hear there was uh, at usc there was there was quite uh somebody who stood up and and really attacked my co-screenwriter and um and maya but you know, uh, in the end, I just I I, I was <laughs> I'm sort of a people pleasing person. I feel like I I I want j- this is just my own issues, but I I I want uh, you know acceptance, and I want I don't want to insult people or rub mm-hmm. people the wrong way. But yet, then I make these films that sometimes do, so it's very mm-hmm. masochistic in a way. <laughs> but I, but I'm doing what I feel is the right thing. I'm doing what I think is is the is the most respectful and least condescending. Or just you know doing something that's not condescending, and that that uh, some people just find uh, as we were getting back to earlier with like uh, going the most PC route with these films, walking on eggshells, um, uh, treating these people as you know as, uh, any it, treating any of your characters as a as a saint is just so dishonest in the end. Um, so I really don't have any I. I'm not even going to sit here and I can't I can't sit here and defend my films because I really feel that puts me in a position where I'm actually feel defensive. I'm not defensive about these right. films anymore. with the Caitlyn Jenner narrative being played out in the media. But what is also interesting is what is not playing out in the media, that there are many transgender people who were quite vocal after the Diane Sawyer interview aired and after the Vanity Fair cover appeared, that Caitlyn Jenner is not representative of the overall transgender community, that this rich white Republican is not the face of the transgender community. And it's heartening, I think, to know that there are, yes, disagreements about Caitlyn. That everyone is not on the same page in some kind of groupthink ideology. There are differing voices about what they feel about her, and that's healthy. The bossy ways we are taught to feel about this transgender moment and the ways in which people who might feel forced to accept this with unconditional respect has caused attention in the culture. This was especially apparent in Jenner being awarded the Arthur Ashe Award of the ESPYs and the fact that if we joke, if anyone jokes about Caitlyn Jenner, 
about the corset, the coal eye shadow, the giggling about girls' nights out in fingernail polish, and competing with former wife Chris Kardashian about who wore what dress best, and in many ways setting back what so many feminists have written about as an unsettling insight into Caitlyn's notion of womanhood. Well, can we as Americans make fun of the Caitlyn Jenner moment? Well, no. It's not nice, and it's not PC, and you are a transphobic troll if you make jokes about this. But there is a long and hallowed history of comedians ridiculing the status quo, which is really what Caitlyn Jenner has become, going back to Lenny Bruce, to George Carlin, to Joan Rivers. And I'm not comparing sickofyourcrap.com, whose motto is offended by none, annoyed by all, to those pioneers, but there was a very rude, somewhat funny takedown of the Caitlyn Jenner moment. And actually, I'm not sure all of it was transphobic exactly, meaning that humor can be found anywhere in this Caitlyn Jenner situation. And there was a piece on this website called Caitlyn Jenner is a Dumb Cunt by Mitchell Boone that is definitely provocateur theater. And I want to read a couple of paragraphs from it because it locates what a lot of people think about Caitlyn. I'm not saying the majority, but increasingly there's a suspicion. And again, I'm not stressing that this is how I feel at all about it, but there's cruel humor here. And the idea that Caitlyn is so noble, such a saint, that we can't touch her with humor, well, that's a contradiction to what Tangerine is about and the cruel ways the girls are with each other and with other people as well. Here's what Boone writes. So now that we all seem to finally be winding down from the exhausting weeks-long insincerity parade celebrating Caitlyn Jenner's coming out while tripping over each other in a rush to prove just how uber-modern, accepting, and progressive we all are towards a meticulously media-packaged celebrity transsexual, I say we all get back to addressing the fact that Caitlyn Jenner is a dumb cunt. And before you even start with the transphobic nonsense, let me make my stance on that subject perfectly clear. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit that Bruce Jenner decided to start living as Caitlyn Jenner, and I sure as shit don't give a shit whether or not you believe that I don't give a shit. I'm a longtime subscriber to the Live and Let Live philosophy, so if you're a guy and you want to run around in a dress and knock yourself out, princess, I don't care. And while you're at it, quit trying to tell me how shocking it was to see his overnight transformation. Anyone with one eye still attached to their mongoloid skull could see that he was becoming a broad for years. Why do I hold Caitlyn Jenner in such contempt? Because she can't drive a fucking car. And while Caitlyn was on stage receiving her Arthur Ashe Courage Award during the ESPY award ceremony, the family of Kim Howe were home grieving her shocking and totally avoidable and tragic death, a death that was caused by Caitlyn Jenner when she plowed into the back of Kim Howe's vehicle, forcing her into oncoming traffic on the Pacific Coast Highway. And then um, Boone goes on to write about all the other incidences where Bruce and Caitlyn have been seen texting on their phones while driving. And while I think it's a good thing for Jenner to go public with the whole transgender, transsexual thing and attempt to make trans teenagers feel a little less alone while they're trying on mom's high heels, how about we all keep this in perspective? Sure, trans people have it rough, and by conservative numbers, they're the victims of at least 200 violent crimes a year, crimes committed against them for simply being kooky. Yes, that sucks, I get it. But get a damn grip, people. Last year, there were 30,000 deaths via auto accidents caused by assholes like Caitlyn Jenner. Maybe she should be speaking out about that, don't you think? Now, this is a provocation, and if you label this as hate speech or anything, which so many social justice warriors did when this piece was posted online, and this is only just a taste of the piece, but, you know, the notion that, okay, there is a list 
There is a list of things that are acceptable to joke about, and then there is a list of things that we cannot joke about, that we can't talk about. We had Anthony Jeselnik mm-hmm. on this podcast, and we were talking about that there's almost at times an instinctual human need to make fun, to joke about things, maybe because they're the unknown, maybe because it bothers us, it disturbs us, and joking about it is a way of dealing with it, of grappling with it. But there's also a kind of shocked, widespread mock indignation, I believe. And I really do believe it's mock indignation. Mm. I don't know how anybody can seriously get pissed off by a tweet. Mm. I don't believe how anyone can seriously get pissed off by something you post on Facebook. But there is the shut it down mentality now that's wandering around. Shut it down. Shut it down. Shut down your business. Shut down your website, whatever. And what is this suggestive of, and are we hitting a point where this could be hopefully going away? First of all, I mean, I, I want to ask you about the idea of, is there anything acceptable well, or unacceptable to joke about? Yeah, um, a lot of stand-ups were, well, no, it was late night shows, basically, that were saying, we're not going to touch this subject, Correct. right? Um, and then I, you know, I happened to go to a lot of stand-up, I, I, I listened to comedians on the radio, and, and there was sort of that, there was that feeling from certain comedians that like why are we not being able to do this this is kind of this is ridiculous and i i think i heard something with dl hughley mm-hmm. say something like yeah jokes are what humanize mm-hmm. you know <laughs> humor is what humanizes are we supposed to if we treat them differently in any way shape or form if we can't make fun of one particular group suddenly we that is the most condescending way of of acting and i see that this is the same that that applies to the way that we went about this film i mean that that's my attitude with this film <laughs> you saw tangerine uh you could take the basic plot of tangerine about a, a a girl with a broken heart who finds out you know finds out that her boyfriend um, has been cheating on her and is now going to be on a, a, a mission to find the girl who's part of that affair. You could take that yes plot and, yes. and throw it down anywhere. It could happen in suburbia USA with this really pissed off cheerleader. Um, so you know <laughs> that's how we that's how Chris and I approached this. We said we're going to. It, if we made a film that was like, you know, that did take place in suburbia USA and was like a clueless type of movie, these are the same exactly. sort of, this is the, we go to these extremes with the jokes and the humor and, 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 you know, with my stuff, I always go lean a little blue in the, right. in the, in the humor. That's, um, that's stuff that I would do in that community. Why not in this one? There's also, and you said, and I think something about this movie is, is true, that Chris is much more enthralled to the mainstream yes. kind of movie making, yeah, yeah, yeah. which you can see in Tangerine because it is not experimental. It is not indie aimlessness. Mm-hmm. It is a very tightly structured series of scenes that yeah. lead to a big climax. And you said that you're slightly more moodier. You have a more European sense. And that during the filming of Takeout, you were, correct me if I'm wrong, complaining bitterly that you were making a movie for $3,000. And yet your producer reminded you that this was basically what Dogma was doing, that the the Lars von Trier, in a way, was at one time doing And that you were very influenced by Lars von Trier, especially, I think, the idiots. Yeah, well, that sensibility thing you were just talking about is very different from what I was complaining about. I was complaining about the fact that I was shooting a film on standard definition after having shot my first film on 35. Okay. So right. it was more of a technical thing that I was complaining about. And my co- I actually co-directed Takeout. That's right, you did. Uh, with Chi Ching Zhou, who 
produce tangerine is actually in and tangerine. She's behind the donut at donut time at the ballot counter. And, and she was the one who was just always telling me, look, it's content, not the way you capture the content. Mm-hmm. And she would and yes, one of my favorite one of the most inspirational films for me is Lars von Trier's The Idiots. I consider it his best film and and that was shot on standard definition. So I just have to keep remembering that. What was it about the idiots? And 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 you want to just remind listeners what the idiots is briefly about. Well, it's a about uh, well, it's about a group of people who decide to um, perform as if they are um, mentally handicapped yes. in public, uh, feeling that it, it leads to some sort of catharsis, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. And it it just truly it's a per- for me it's a perfect blend of um, and it's a flat out comedy, it, by the way. Well, so it, it, I was going to say it also has no, no. It's not flat out. I would well, say it's, it's yeah. It, it definitely has a lot of comedic elements. Right. Very uncomfortable comfortable comedic yeah. elements too. Yes. Yeah. And do, and it doesn't shy away from no, right. what I guess could be considered on PC. Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, but and then also it, it also has uh, a lot of, you know, the social commentary and drama and it mixes it all together in a way that and then of course on top of that the dro- the dogma 95 rules it doesn't allow for mm-hmm. manipulation through certain things like music and I was incredibly moved by this film. So I and I and, I, and that's why I put it on even more of a, a higher pedestal the fact that i was moved without those manipulative elements that we are used to putting into cinema yeah for people who don't know what the dogma 95 thing was it was something that Lars von trier i think in conjunction with thomas vindenberg right and a whole group of uh, and basically what were those things that you couldn't use a a score uh, it was a whole manifesto a manifesto uh, on how to make movies and i mean not all of Lars movies are that no they're not just that one yeah it was just actually that one because the use of music and the use of you know manipulation and everything. The most famous one being the celebration. But the Thomas Vintenberg, right, yeah, right. I really have liked pretty much every Lars von Trier movie of the last ten years. I really think he's hitting a huge stride. Oh yeah, and I thought Nymphomaniac was pretty amazing, and. Um, was I'm not, I guess not surprised that more people didn't see it, but I just mm. think Antichrist and uh, Melancholia. He's really kind of he's, hitting he's this. He's still making ride. very personal films. He's making the films he wants to make. Are you a reader of the New York Times? Um, I actually am not. Um, Unless there are some reviews. <laughs> I read the reviews. Well, that's what I wanted to talk oh, okay, about. I wanted okay. to talk to the reviewers at the New York Times. Right. When the New York Times announced, I guess, a couple of years ago that it was the year of the woman they extolled in their year-end, I think, magazine, you really can't help notice that the coverage, especially in the art section, have not only expanded to many more female-centric stories, but some might say overcompensated. And some of the coverage has become somewhat biased, and it has something that has crept into the strategy of the film reviews of the two lead critics, Mandola Dargis and A.O. Scott. And it's become so noticeable that it has become a topic of conversation among filmmakers I know here in L.A. and financiers and people working within the business that the reviews have become incredibly female centric that there are times when films are completely overrated because of a kind of gender thing going on in the film whether it's a kind of nice little comedy like Spy uh, with Melissa McCarthy is kind of loudly cheered as something more than it is and that there are odd times when Medola will in an otherwise favorable review of Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice immediately attacks a scene where a woman uses her body as a sexual prop and goes below on this one scene and then 
kind of drifts out of the review. And I was wondering, first of all, have you noticed that? And do you think this ties in with a theme that we're... And again, I don't want to lead you on to this because I feel like I'm leading you on with it. No, no, no. But have you seen this? The things that we focus on to criticize comes in and out of fashion. So right now it is... uh, We're at a point where, you know, criticism is focusing mostly on... Uh, representation, uh, you know, uh, political, very political um, topics. And in this case, um, I don't know if I've noticed that exactly, but I've in with the New York Times, but I've definitely have noticed, I think I've, I've noticed um, a trend with reviews to always have to find either a, a flaw or a strength in the way that uh, a film, uh, in, in a particular political uh, topic, mm-hmm. so um, which is you know it's an important thing to do, but it's also it's also something that is is so clearly fashionable, <laughs> so clearly yeah. the topic of the day. So therefore, we have to p- comment on it. But it's so interesting. I, I really doubt that Paul and Kale would have ever done that. Mm-hmm. I really don't think James uh, Yee would do that. It's just very interesting now when critics are kind of owned by corporations that they do feel this need to be a kind of cheerleader for what's going on mm-hmm. in the culture and how that affects the way they view and extol the virtues of a movie or criticize a movie is you know kind of worrying to a degree I would imagine for the filmmaker I would imagine even for the readers of the reviews that this is right. and and it's true it's so interesting I thought it was kind of on my own but then increasingly we've had more where people call did you read this monologue what is she talking about? And I know she's always been prickly about her feminism, and it's always been wherever she was writing before. Maybe it's just much more noticeable when you have this platform of the New York Times and you become such an influential critic. But I want to talk about American movies now that we're on it. We now usually wait until the end of the year for a few interesting or ambitious mainstream American movies made by auteurs. But, you know, each year it's getting dicier, and it's more noticeable than ever that there is a seasonal thing in American movies. There is the first nine months, and then Toronto happens, Mm. and then they all start pouring in the awards movies. And, yes, last year, Grand Budapest Hotel opened, I think, in March. Boyhood opened in June. But that's kind of an anomaly. Mm. That doesn't Mm. really happen. Everything is – and you can already look at the the schedules, the year-long schedules. Mm. What is opening in November and December? Right. And it's become this thing that – I think affects me and other people I know who are cinephiles. What do we do with an industry where, for me right now, the best American film so far this year is Inside Out, the Pixar movie. I haven't seen it yet. Which is a five years in the making animated movie with an unlimited budget. Mm. They could do whatever they wanted. Mm. And you can see that. You can see that kind of imagination on the screen. You can see at times, and it's a conversation that I had kind of with James Gray on this podcast, that, you know, having the resources can really make a movie. Right. An experience. And he was saying that what's so sad about the current state of independent movie making is that he misses not having that palette, those colors to play mm. with, that mm. canvas yeah. to draw on anymore. Yeah, yeah. And other people would argue, well, a movie is just a movie. A movie can be this. You can, like, figure out how to do it. So yeah. often it's the other way. People say, you know, it's your lack of any sort of resources that lead to creativity. Right. And, this and, that. and that's a, that's a good that, – that, that's, that's definitely valid. A tangerine is an example of that. But at the same time, the other extreme is just 
almost as as real. Well, so what does a cinephile do? I know you are. I mean, what is your that, that hunger for movies? So it really can't be sated mm. by the current crop of how American movies are being made and distributed in a way. I guess it's from watching old movies now. I watch a lot more foreign movies now. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I watch as much as I as humanly possible. Yeah. <laughs> I watch a little too much, actually, mm-hmm. I think. And now that there's just so much content out there, you get to a point where you're just you're about to give up. But yeah, I uh, I, I have to stay. I, I Yes, I, of course, I watch the classics. And of course, I watch as much foreign as possible. But I also really have to stay up on what's new. I think mm-hmm. that that's important for any filmmaker. I, I can't stand when I hear filmmakers my age or, or even younger saying, oh, I don't want I haven't watched the films. I don't get it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's like it's like not listening to contemporary music. That also that's something I don't understand either. Right. I have a lot of friends who haven't listened to anything since oh, the I classic know. Zeppelin in high school, and that's it's like well, there's been twenty years, thirty years since then, guys. So it's uh, I don't know. I um I don't I don't get that just that whole attitude, uh, but. Um, you had a lot of questions in there, so no, I'm not no, sure. No, exactly. I'm just asking. I'm just sort of asking about, I guess, 2015 so far. Well, so far, some of the movies that I mean, I, I referenced the Safdie yeah. brothers. Oh, I, heaven I knows why, because a yeah. lot of people Did I know like, like that. Uh, I thought the miserableness of it became a distraction. Ultimately, mm. I'm glad it stayed true to its mm. instincts, and it was a very pure movie. Mm. But the miserableist aspect of it became kind of a, a badge. I right. felt it was wearing, and I ultimately found it like I don't look I'm not looking for a happy ending guys I'm not looking but I need some shift in tone perhaps and you know and so ultimately the movie bummed me out on a certain level even though I I I think that DP is great and I thought how they stayed so true to the story I just thought ultimately okay why am I watching this yeah I uh I actually really liked it I felt because I knew that world I, Mm -hmm. I was in New York in the 90s those types of kids were my dealers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, I know that they captured it right, and that's what made it for me a great film. Uh, they really, ooh, great film, really. So it's up there. Because I think I, it's their best. Oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's probably their best. But no, no, because you, because you, I, I want to see it because mm. people were talking about mm. it, like you're talking mm. about mm. it. But I'm just like, again, I'm surprised. So, you, so it's a great film for you. I think it's a great American film. Yeah, yeah, I do. Interesting. Yeah, because it, it again, it stayed true. It didn't feel the Net the need to deliver on certain things like the three act structure or the the tone uh, the tonal shifts for pleasing an audience, you know. Um, oh, I, I just, very much the opposite. Yeah, very much the opposite. And I really I really respect that sort of, of thing course. because you know we talked about it earlier. You know you can you can you can really. Um, You'd be very calculated uh, with with your film. You can make you can make a Sundance movie. You oh, can, yeah. you know, you me can and Earl it. and the Dying Girl. Yes, they they but, are made a lot. But um, and so I really I respect when filmmakers uh, really stick to it and, and try to break that mold. The other movie that uh, many of my cinephile friends and I say my cinephile friends, I feel like proud to say that because it's it's so antiquated it seems in a way especially in light of that article that A.L. Scott wrote a couple years back about the death of the cinephile and right. what, what does a cinephile even exist in this moment with a lot of my guests when we talk about that saying who cares we are anyway and we're going to talk about movies and we're going to love them anyway yeah. My cinephile friends, uh, if I count out their votes, the one movie that four of them listed as their best film so far of 2015, and it's been playing in festivals throughout 2014, 
is a Ukraine movie called The Tribe, oh, yeah. which, again, has a kind of miserableist yes. bleakness yes. to it that I ultimately also checked out on, even though it has, like, heaven knows what, mm. a kind of technical virtuosity to mm. it. Mm. Oh, uh, yeah. It's quite amazing, actually, technically. But there is also a six-minute static abortion scene yeah. that I felt, okay, well, it's a young filmmaker. He's probably very proud of this mm. for being so unflinching, when finally I just felt it was kind of a fake dare and i didn't really i'm i totally agree with i just thought okay so why not just go all the way yes why not have a shot of her vagina open up with the clam right why not show the blood spurting out while you know it's kind of an artistic fetishization that just left me it wasn't just that scene actually for me it was a lot of the previous violence as well um that just unfortunately did not uh, deliver in terms of just the realism, right. which was w- what bothered me. The end scene, I thought, was uh, extremely realistic. And, um, and effective. And, effective. A- and kind yes. of like lifted me back yes. into the movie. Yes. But when you can tell something isn't really happening and they're trying to and the and the filmmaker's intention is to is to deliver on reality then there's a problem there so the abortion scene for example um i just i i didn't buy it and therefore i didn't connect a topic that is often discussed on this podcast with filmmakers was the 1970s yes and that there is a risk in over romanticizing the movie making of the 70s because as i said this is a period that is talked about all the time with a vast array of filmmakers who have been on the podcast but the risk in romanticizing is that despite the seminal movies made there was a ton of unbelievably bad product and i was looking on wikipedia the other other day for a movie i couldn't remember the title exactly and i thought okay it's 1976 and wikipedia has u.s movies of 1976 and i was scrolling through it trying to find trying to find this the name of this movie and yeah 76 there was taxi driver there was carrie Mm. there was all the president's men Mm. there was network i couldn't believe the hundreds of other terrible movies that i remember seeing as a kid and there is just this notion that it was an all-out feast of great filmmaking because there are 30 to 50 classic movies during that time actually when i compare what i'm seeing now we're not hitting those masterpieces regularly but the quality is actually per movie a little bit better yeah, perhaps as a whole but the reason that we looked at the 70s is because those masterpieces were so progressive and i don't know if we have these masterpieces being as progressive these right. days or where the masterpieces are i do i see most of the masterpieces coming from europe i really do or or or, or asia uh i i that's where i'm seeing the stuff come i'm feeling the same way i know that last year if my top five movies three of them were foreign films mm. and two Two of them were the most obvious American films, uh, two movies that Alex Ross Perry and I talked about, which were Birdman and, and Boyhood. And Alex was very interesting on both those films, very interesting about Boyhood, his take on it, which was, yeah, loved it first time, second time okay, I'm glad I saw this a second time, and I'm never going to see this movie again. I'm never <laughs> going to sit through it again. I get it. I get it. Yeah. And his takedown of Birdman was more interesting. I didn't really agree with it because there was something uh, cinematic about Birdman that I latched onto, even yeah. though I can understand how other people yeah. did not. Yeah, but foreign films yeah. are really the thing that I'm getting most excited you by. I am the, not excited by American he, movies. He's, he's quite an exception, though. He's an amazing... He His... Uh, Listen Up Philip for me was one of the top three of that year. 
in my um, top seven. Yeah. Okay. I don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but he. Uh, I just. I. I it was so ridiculous the way that people, uh, reviewers, and you know there were people. Uh, I was very. I was taken aback by the fact that it wasn't nominated for one Spirit Award. Oh, I know. <laughs> I, was, I know. I even like. I knew some people on the board, and mm-hmm. I even called them up. I said, um, "Did you guys not see it?" <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, but it was just so dark." And was, I know. And I was like, "Yeah, it's about a misanthrope." Hello. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Hello. I know. So. Uh, it's really it really makes me worried for this kind of it, major chord culture where we have to like everybody yeah. or everyone's a victim. Mm, you know, that's mm, the other mm, thing mm, that goes on. But, mm. you know, to kind of wrap it up, I mean, when I think of people who've been on the podcast, there are filmmakers who are pessimists. Mm. Michael Tolkien, who's made a couple of films but is primarily a writer, thinks it's completely over. It's gone. That film culture is gone. The film intelligentsia is gone. That the internet has cracked up everything into niche culture. That it's all niche. There's no concrete film culture. Mm. James Gray, slightly pessimistic too. And then there are optimists. Uh, Jason Blum, the producer, is very optimistic about this moment because he thinks anyone can make anything they want anytime they want to. For example, you and I could leave this Mm. podcast studio and go shoot a movie in the lobby of my building if we wanted to today and just get people to be in it. Right. Um, it's just it's just getting seen is, is the problem. I fall somewhere in between. Yeah. Uh, because I, I just... And you know what? I have to say this. I'm, I'm just really disappointed with American audiences. I really am. <laughs> and you know yeah. what? I, 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 I blame... I blame many different... You know, uh, I blame the industry. I blame corporate, corporate uh, way... You know, corporations for their way of approaching filmmaking. But I, I also have to just say that when it comes down to it, the American audience has been given so much and they decide to take certain things and they decide to take the superhero movies and they decide to pay for films like that in the theater when they could be keeping the more i think the tougher films that the the films that are personal the you know i'm not going to use the word indie on this because it you don't it doesn't need to be um independent to be progressive in its thinking and to be offering new ways of of approaching subjects um I I just feel I'm really disappointed that the US audience seems to always want just the popcorn fare. And you know, that's it's a sad thing. I don't know what to do to correct that. Finally, uh I am kind of haunted by the fact that it's very difficult to make money in the film industry now. Mm-hmm. Andrew Haig, the director of Weekend, and one of the key creators I'm looking at who's on this podcast, has said that he made no money off Weekend. Mm. He expects to make no money off his new film that won, I think, uh, Golden Lion. Oh. Was it? Uh, no, 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 right in Berlin for yeah. Tom Courtney and right. Charlotte Rampling. And then he said, but I remember getting into this business not to make money. I, I remember getting into this business not to make money. If it happened, it would happen. Yeah, but there's a difference between not making money and being in major debt because of it. You right. know what I mean? There, I think we're, we've reached the point where filmmaking is such fallen into hobby territory mm-hmm. that we are we are ba- we are basically borrowing rent money at this point. We and we, you need a second job. You need to find something else to support your 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 living basically how um, are you doing it well i'm not i mean tangerine really put me in the hole i mean really put me in the hole where i had to now borrow money from parents 
place for rent. Mm-hmm. And I'll be very honest about yeah, that because yeah. I'm lucky enough to have two supportive parents and at my age to not have cut me off. Um, but, you know, I hope they see it as, as a temporary period of my life. I mean, I was at one point, you know, able to to live properly. I was one of the creators of Greg the Bunny. That's right. And this show supported me for over a 12-year period of time in which I did not have to worry about these things. But then when you just focus on independent film and suddenly that's what you're trying to do, it becomes a lot more tough. And I feel people... I, 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 I consider myself one of the lucky ones because I was able to actually make, take out Prince of Broadway and Starlet while having uh, this Greg the Bunny uh, thing to support me with. I had this alternative career that was basically in the same, you know, it was in the same wheelhouse. I was, I was being able to create and put stuff, you know, out there. So I, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. I can't imagine people who don't have that sort of uh, that support and don't um, and have families on top of that. I don't have a family. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God I'm not married and don't have children because I would not be making films. Guaranteed. I have a dog to support. I mean, he, he, he costs probably more than I do to, to feed, but still it's fine. Freddie Sinellis here for True Car. People everywhere, no matter where they are, use their mobile phones. So it makes sense a company like True Car would come along and create a mobile app that makes buying a new car simple and fun. You just download the True Car app, configure the car you want, and you can see what others actually paid for the same car down to your zip code. Then you can lock in guaranteed savings from True Car certified dealers in your area. On average, over three grand off MSRP. Save time, save money, and never overpay. Download the True Car app today.